The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. said that we are dismissing kindergartners and below, which is a little unusual. I mentioned this last week when we began to do that. So our first graders and second graders are in here today, and if you've read ahead at the text, you might be wondering how we're going to handle that. But let me say something. If you're a first grader or a second grader and you're here today, it is a very good thing. We're excited that you're here. It's good to be a part of the whole church family and listen to the Word of God preached. And what I'm going to talk about today has some kind of big words in it, which you might not be familiar with, and your mom and dad might want to talk to you about a little bit later, but basically what we're talking about I'm speaking to first graders and second graders here, is we're talking basically about a special kind of love that God says that mommy and daddy are supposed to have for each other and only for each other. So I'm going to use some words that are going to talk about that and how God says we're supposed to do that and we're not supposed to give that love away to anybody else. Ask your mom and your dad to explain a little bit more about that if there are things that are hard to understand. But that's basically where we're going this morning, okay? Let me pray, then we'll begin. Father, we are in always great need of you. And I sense that a little bit more this morning, perhaps. Where I am and what you've been doing in me and the events of this week, I sense particularly a need of you this morning. And so I ask, would you come and be present in my mind and in my heart for my brothers and sisters here, for those here who don't know you personally, for those who don't know where they stand with you, would you be present with each one of us in a unique and special way to speak truth to our hearts, to engage us with yourself, to make your word live, to make it sing and to make it sting God, we need you to speak because we need you in all of life. And in this particular area of life, we are prone to confusion and prone to wandering. I pray, Lord, make the truth clear. Open my mouth and bring forth your word, not mine. Open our ears and cause it to rest and be planted and to produce fruit. It's my prayer this morning that Christ would be exalted by the Scriptures and that your church would be built and and grown in holiness. The bride would be purified. And that others here who don't know you would be called in. Accomplish that this morning, Father, by your Spirit, I pray. In Christ's name, Amen. It's been a couple of weeks since the governor of South Carolina's adultery burst into the public scene, which was a couple of weeks after the senator from Nevada, which was a couple of months after consecutive governors from New York, which was a couple of months after the senator from Idaho, which was a couple of weeks or months after fill in the blank. The list of high-profile adultery is never-ending because adultery is never-ending. You can read about it in the media. We can trace it through the, the entertainment news. 
We can look around the office, and some of us can look into our own families. It's everywhere. You can go onto internet websites and find help in hooking up with somebody else's spouse. There are websites for spouses to go to, to find other spouses. It's prevalent in our society. It's everywhere. And oftentimes, particularly in, in these very public ones, you see the spouse kind of trotted up in front. In these cases, all with the husband there. The, the wife trotted up in front, held up to public scrutiny. And everybody's wondering, well, we all know how she feels about all this. And our hearts certainly go out to her. She has been so wronged, and it's obvious, the whole situation. I wonder, though, in, in those public government, media, entertainment, or the slightly less public office place or the private, your own family, in those situations where adultery is touched home, do we realize that God is an offended party? And that the adulterer, him or herself, has also been deeply hurt by this. we're going to touch on this morning in the seventh commandment. We've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. We've spent the last several weeks looking at the ten commandments. We've dealt with the first four commandments, which form what is sometimes called the first table of the law because they form a unit addressing how it is that we are to relate to God here in his world. And we're now into the second table of the law, which instructs us how to relate not purely vertically, but now horizontally to other people. The the law has those two halves, how to relate to God and how to relate to people, given that we already are the people of God. I need to make that clear. I say that every week, but it bears repeating. Because there is large confusion about the Ten Commandments. There are many people who teach that the Ten Commandments are, here's what you follow so as to become right with God. It is not that. It's a historical fact that he gave the Ten Commandments to those he had already made to be his people. The Ten Commandments, rather, are given that you already are in relationship. Here's then how to live. First with God, and then with people. So we need to understand, we need to understand what the Ten Commandments are. They are instruction to the people of God how to live in ways that please him, given that you are his. Not how do you become his. So we've covered the first four, we've moved into the second table, and this morning we're on the seventh commandment. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to actually start, as I have been, back in verse 6 to set up the whole context, leads us to our verse, verse 18 for today. So I'm going to begin reading Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. Our passage for today is, again, pretty simple. Just like verse 17 from last week, it's only two words in Hebrew. Not commit adultery. Pretty straightforward. And in addressing adultery, God is focusing on something specific. The word adultery is a word describing sexual relationship somehow in the context of marriage. So it's, it's somehow dealing with at least one marriage. At least one spouse is interacting with somebody else who's not his or her spouse. It could be two marriages, but at least one marriage bond is being broken. That's what we're getting at here. Sex between two non-married people, one of whom is married. So it's not directly addressing, what adultery is not directly addressing sex between people who neither of whom are married. It's not directly addressing that. It'll, it'll come to that eventually, we'll see. But right on the surface, this is about marriage and violating that husband and wife only relationship. And to help us understand something, help us understand why of all the possible sexual activity and all the possible sexual sin, and there's just a host of it, why is this thing in particular in the Ten Commandments? To help us understand that, we need to figure out a little bit about what marriage is about. We've got to kind of set the context here. And so we're going to need to look at marriage to figure out what God is doing in that, why He created it. Why is that an especially important thing, so of such importance that He would put it in the the, the Ten Commandments. So we're going to take kind of a detour here into marriage, but it's going to come back and it's going to help us to understand the Seventh Commandment itself. So marriage first. Marriage was created by God for a grand, temporary purpose. Marriage is temporary. It will not last forever. We have that taught, clarified by Jesus himself. This is Matthew chapter 22. Some Jewish religious leaders there had come to Jesus and they were arguing with him. They were trying to, to prove that what Jesus was teaching about the next life, the resurrection life, was false. Jesus, of course, was teaching that we have a life now and there is a life that's coming. After death, there is another life and every one of us is going to pass into it and face judgment. And we had better live now with that in mind because it's going to affect how we prepare ourselves, what we do now for that time. So he was encouraging people constantly, look forward, there is a life coming. And certain Jewish leaders did not believe that. They said, no, there isn't. You die and that's it. And to try to prove that point, they came to Jesus with a question, kind of a scenario that they wanted to stump him with. And they said, 
Okay, Jesus, this is Matthew 22. There were seven brothers. And one by one, those brothers married the same particular woman and then died. So the first guy married her and died. The second one married her and died. The third one married her and died, etc., etc. Then here's the kicker, the question. Okay, in the next life then that you say exists, whose wife is she? Who is she bound to for all of eternity? Is it the first one, the second one, the third one? Come on. How do you solve that one? Thinking, eh, you can't. And Jesus' answer is not, well, obviously it's the first one. She's bound to the first one forever. Nor is his answer, well, which one was she specially ceremonially tied to and attached to? Which one did they take a special vow or go through some special circumstances to fasten? That's the one that she's married to forever. That's not his answer either. His answer, rather, is you have this problem because you misunderstand something fundamental. There is no marriage in the next life. None. She's not married to any of them because nobody's married. Marriage does not pass on from here to there. All eight of them, all seven brothers and the one woman, they're going to be equals in heaven like the angels, not giving themselves to one another in marriage, not bound in families forever. Marriage is temporary. It's here in this life, but it does not go into the next. We have that off of the lips of the Savior Himself. Matthew 22. And that makes perfect sense given the purpose of marriage. God created marriage and the sexual intimacy that it contains for this world, for this life, for a purpose. Really important purpose. Not ultimately about having kids. It's a type. We've talked about that word before. A type that is a concrete analogy, a, a model, a, a picture. Something that that we hold up and look at, and it's referring actually to something else. It's pointing towards something else. Well, what's it a model of? What does human marriage model that it's pointing towards and depicting? Listen to it in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read a couple of phrases from that chapter, chapter 5. And as you listen, remember what we're working on. We're trying to figure out why is marriage so important that God would be so concerned about, about purity in marriage that He would put it in the Ten Commandments. Of all the possible sexual sin, this is the one He's concerned about. He puts it in the Ten Commandments. Why? Because of this model, listen to what Paul says the model is pointing to. Starting in Ephesians 5.23. He says, The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ so also wives to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Nourish and cherish them as Christ does the church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Did you hear that? How could you not with me reading it like that? But 5.23 and following, he's talking about husbands and wives. Actually, he's talking about Christ and the church. Wives are to be this way and that because that's how Christ and the church is. Husbands are to be this and that because that's how Christ and the church is. And the whole thing refers to Christ and the church. 
This is profound. This, this human relationship that we have here that God has created and has put most people into, not everybody, of course, but most people in the world end up married, and God has created that for a purpose, to point at something. To point us to and to help us understand Christ and the church. He created it in a picture. The invisible, spiritual union of Christ and the church. The relationship between God the Son, the Bridegroom, and the church, the Bride. That relationship, it's real right now, but it's invisible. It's easy to forget, we can't see it. And so to hold it up in front of us and to make the invisible visible right in front of us, He created marriage and put it right out for all of us to see and for all of us to experience and to feel. Now, in the next life, when we see Him face to face and we interact with Him personally, the model, the need for the model passes away. We don't need it anymore. We have Him right there. Groom to bride. But now, marriage still exists and, and goes on as a covenant that models for us what the covenant of God with His church is like. And sex is a huge part of that. Sex is at the core of that marriage relationship. It's a huge part of it. Think about what's going on in sex. Don't think too hard, but think about what's going on in sex. <laughs> Last words of Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that's marriage, and they shall become one flesh. It's a metaphor. It's mirroring in the physical, a union. They shall become one flesh. One in, in a, a metaphysical way, I suppose, and then one actually in a physical way. Become one flesh. The union of openness and vulnerability where they are both naked and not ashamed. That's at the heart of marriage. At the center of marriage is the husband, the groom, and the bride coming together. The two becoming one, naked and not ashamed, perfectly united together. Totally and fully exposed. And they can be that way because right in the center of the marriage, all that you find there is total and full love and acceptance and union. Nowhere else in all of life do we experience that than in the marriage bed. On purpose by the design of God to point us to Christ in the church. God made it so that we could experience in a very deep place in our souls and bodies to touch us at the core so we could feel something. We could feel what covenant acceptance and covenant union and covenant love and covenant forgiveness and covenant mercy and covenant grace is really truly like. Not as a concept, but experienced as you lie naked and not ashamed with someone else. You have to see that sex is not about procreation. Not really. I mean, the sheer variety of ways in which God's creatures generate young should indicate to us that He had a whole list of options. It's not about 
having children. You could have done that in a thousand ways. It's about one naked and not ashamed. Something we could feel and we could know what the blessedness of union is like. And so that we could feel and we could know the travesty of covenant breaking. The pain of when a committed one with whom you have lain naked and not ashamed says, mm, I'm going to go somewhere else. And rips away from you and gives him or herself to another and breaks the covenant. The pain of adultery. He wants us to know how it feels to break a covenant. And so he created marriage and created sex and created the union so that we would have a living model about what ripping away feels like. And he forbids it in marriage because he forbids it in covenant with him. In fact, this is the, the common way that God describes the spiritual unfaithfulness of his people, Israel. Read through the prophets. Repeatedly, his common terminology is an unfaithful wife, an adulteress, a prostitute. I have wooed you, I have won you, I have given to you everything, and you have gone off and slept with another. The nations, you have lined them up on a hilltop in Israel, and right in front of my eyes. Appalling. And that has feeling, that has meaning to us, because he created marriage and sexual intimacy, so that there's something there. It's totally different than the guy at work that you used to have lunch with every day, gets transferred to another department, and so your relationship is kind of, you know, over. That's totally different than if the guy at work sleeps with your wife. Totally different by God's design so that we can understand covenant breaking. That's the context. It's basically all introduction. That's the context that sets up what God means marriage and the core of marriage, sexual intimacy to be. And why it is so important to him, because it's pointing us at something, Christ and the church, and that is critical to God, that the message of what Christ and the church is like be sung loud and clear in the world. It's all the context. Now we're going to turn to try to unpack the commandment a little bit. There are a couple of things we're going to consider. I'm going to make two observations from the seventh commandment itself. first observation is concerned with, right on the surface, what it explicitly says. We must remain physically pure and faithful within marriage. God requires physical, sexual purity and faithfulness in the marriage relationship. Right on the surface, that's the positive way of expressing what you shall not commit adultery means. Pretty obvious. In creating marriage, he's established this exclusive relationship, one man, one woman, they form a family. They have children. It's the, the foundation of society. And so, staying right on the surface still here, one major and obvious reason that God forbids adultery is because adultery destroys marriages, 
which in turn then destroys families and in turn then destroys societies. Inevitably. Look around, it's happening everywhere. The July 13th edition of Time Magazine, so I mean July 13th is technically tomorrow, but it came out already. The July 13th edition of Time Magazine, the the cover story is entitled, Unfaithfully Yours. Subtitle, Infidelity is Eroding Our Most Sacred Institution. Time Magazine. To pull one line out of the article, one quote says, quote, No other single force is causing as much measurable hardship in this country as the collapse of marriage. End quote. And what's leading to that? Infidelity. So one gigantic, obvious, gracious reason, gracious reason, that God forbids adulteries because He cares about people and societies and families and the little people, children, that are growing up in and are shaped by all of that. And he knows that A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, leads to destruction. And so he forbids A. So as to stop the chain. He knows that adultery is tremendous mortal danger to people. The cheated on spouse and the adulterer him or herself. And all of those people who are around them. It is not a victimless crime. It has measurable impact on the nation. It's right on the surface. That's the, that's the practical reason. But beyond the measurable, the, the sociological approach is the profound theological issue that we have to understand. And this is where the whole context of what's going on in marriage and, and sex, why God created that, bring that back into the forefront of your mind now. The marital relationship parallels the spiritual relationship that God the bridegroom has with his bride, the church. It's pointing at that. And so he commands, you shall not commit adultery so as to protect the model and to continue to communicate clearly what this covenant relationship with God and the church is looking like, what it looks like, what it's supposed to be, what you can be in, what you can experience. He wants to tell the truth about the groom and what covenant with him is like and what commitment by him is like. It never ends. He never gets tired of you if you lose your appeal or get wrinkly. He never throws you away if you sin in some grievous way. He doesn't discover that he made a mistake with you and that he really has a soulmate somewhere else. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You can always trust Him. And you can always find in Him perfect openness and vulnerability met with from Him perfect love and perfect grace and perfect acceptance. Naked and not ashamed. Never. And as we are faithful in that covenant with Him, we learn what it's like to bear up with one another through hardship. And we learn something about how He is bearing up with us through hardship. And so adultery is evil. It is sin against God. 
not primarily against your spouse. It is sin against God, not just because it ruins families and societies, but even more. Because it ruins, it mars, it twists, it perverts the picture that marriage and sexual intimacy is supposed to be of the bridegroom and his bride, the church. It tells a lie about Christ's love. It clothes him in false garments, clouds him, and leads those who might seek that kind of love and that kind of acceptance. It leads them away and tells them to look somewhere else. And therefore, it strikes at the very heart of the gospel message and twists it. Don't come here looking for perfect acceptance and perfect love that lasts forever. God is extremely concerned that we communicate steadfast love is steadfast. Covenant vows last. And when He says, I give you this kind of love and I make this kind of commitment to you, He means it. Without that, you end up in this situation. I used to minister on a college campus. And I was in a situation where we were doing a program in a, in a sorority house with sorority girls and fraternity guys many of whom were in relations with each other, and one of them said this. We're talking about relationships and commitment and some of this sort of material. And she said, of course I'm committed to my boyfriend until we break up. And I said, what? And she repeated it. She said what she meant. And I thought, by that definition, all of us are committed to everything. I'm committed to standing here until I sit down. Steadfast love is steadfast until it changes. Jesus is for you until he's not. We lose, we lose all bearing on, on what words mean and what God is trying to communicate with words. If the covenant of marriage begins to mean nothing to us. Adultery ruins society. Adultery mars the picture of what God's trying to communicate with Christ and the church. And if none of that makes sense, it should be clear enough, because I said so, you shall not commit adultery. And as I say that, I venture a guess that some here, or some who are listening to this, have been, or perhaps even currently are, in a relationship that is adulterous. Repent. It is sin. It breaks the law of God. He says, you shall not do that. Maybe you don't buy that it's going to ruin your, your relationships, your kids, your society, etc. Maybe you don't really care about what it says about Christ and the church. But at the bottom level, he says, don't do that. And you stand accountable to him. Repent. Turn away. And there is great hope. The good news is that there is great hope for penitent sinners before God. Those who come to him and say, I'm guilty, help. He responds to that in grace. 
Repent. Tell someone. Tell me. Tell an elder. Tell your spouse. The Bible's full of hope if you do. And there's pain if you don't. But while there may be a few of us in that situation, that specific situation of right now sleeping with someone who's not your spouse or someone who's somebody else's spouse, if we broaden the circle just a little bit, we're going to pull a whole bunch more of us into it. As we put our finger on another type of physical adultery, we're going to bring a lot more people into this, and and really we're going to let Jesus put his finger on another aspect of physical adultery. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 31. 531, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to come to that eventually, so we're working through Deuteronomy. But basically what's going on in Deuteronomy 24 is that Moses is recognizing that the people of Israel are in fact divorcing their wives. Speaking to the men, that's how it happened in that society. The men are divorcing their wives, and so he says... I tell you then, you've got to give them a certificate of divorce. You've got to write it down on a piece of paper that they are, in fact, divorced from you. Because in that society, a woman and her kids could not live apart from the income in the house of a man. So she is going to have to get married again. And he says that at least you can write her a certificate so that everybody knows she's not married anymore and he can marry her. Take her in. Well, Jesus continues, though. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, the the certificate is the humane way of sustaining her life, but it still breaks the seventh commandment. Why? Because unless she herself has already committed adultery and has broken that marriage bond, you can write a certificate and say, I divorce you, but she's in fact still married to you in God's eyes. And so when he latches onto her, that's adultery because he's sleeping with somebody else's wife. The marriage bond is not broken by you saying, I break it and writing it down. A court can't certify this marriage is over. They don't have the right. It's a covenant made in God's eyes. The first marriage still stands, unless broken by sexual immorality. And Paul then later adds in a second, very narrow exception. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds in, in the case of a, follow this, is very narrow, of a non-Christian who divorces a Christian because of that Christian's Christianity. The non-Christian says, you're a Christian, I don't like that, I don't want anything to do with it, I divorce you. In that case, the marriage bond is broken, and in the case of adultery, the marriage bond is broken, otherwise it is not broken. And so to marry that divorced person is to commit adultery and break the seventh commandment. Which if you're thinking this through, 
a whole bunch of us just got included in this. Because there are, tragically, many of us in this church in second or third marriages, which by Jesus' definition are adulterous. What are you going to do with that? Killing the messenger will not help. It's in red ink in your Bible. I think it's pretty plain. What are you going to do with it? Don't try to overlook it or pretend you didn't hear it or argue your way out of it or reject it or say, let's move on to the second observation already. Adulterers. Whether you've slept with someone outside of a marriage bond or committed adultery by illegitimate divorce and remarriage. Either way, you're a lawbreaker and I plead with you, don't run from it, face it. Humbly. Honestly. God has provided a way. One way. To deal with adultery. With your breaking of the marriage bond. And that one way is the bridegroom who himself is always pure and always faithful. Never breaks a covenant. Never breaks a vow. But went to the cross anyway. Why? For your sin. There is a way to deal with this. And running away isn't it. Denying it isn't it. Coming to him and saying, Jesus... Would you take my guilt on you on the cross? And would you give to me your perfect covenant keeping, your perfect faithfulness, your perfect purity? I need that to stand before a holy God. Would you give that to me? And would you take and pay for my sin? That's what the cross is all about. That is the only way to deal with law-breaking. Run to Him. It's been said that the only place to flee from God angered is to God satisfied. And He is satisfied by the payment of His Son for your sin. Go to Him there. And be forgiven. Don't run and remain under wrath. Jesus is the only hope for sinners for lawbreakers, for adulterers. Like those who are sleeping right now with somebody who's not their spouse. Like those who are illegitimately divorced and remarried. Like all of us. Unless you're a very young child. The circle is narrow there at the beginning that expands to include issues related to divorce and it's going to expand a little more and rope all of us into it. We all have a problem with the seventh commandment. That brings us to the second observation. The second observation moves us beyond physical purity. Here it is. We must remain mentally and emotionally pure in every circumstance in life. We must remain mentally and emotionally, what I'm getting at is the inside and the heart and the mind, how you think, what you feel, what you want, what you desire, not what you touch and what you do. On the inside, we must remain physically and now mentally and emotionally pure, no matter what our circumstance in life. 
we, we should expect something like this, because as we've seen repeatedly throughout the, the Ten Commandments and throughout all the law, God is first and foremost, especially, primarily concerned with the heart. He's all about behavior as well. I'm not saying that it's not, he's not concerned with that, but behavior comes from the inside, so this is target one. He's concerned about what's going on on the inside, so we should expect that he would not settle for just don't sleep with somebody else. We should expect him to get at the inside, and he does, and Jesus makes that explicit again. Sermon on the Mount. We were just looking at verse verse, uh, 31. Now we're going to look at verse 27. I'm going to back it up a little bit. This is Matthew 5, 27, Jesus again speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where do we hear that said? Seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Everyone, not just married men, Everyone who looks at a woman, not just a married woman, speaking in a society, he's addressing men, it goes the other way as well. Everyone who looks with lustful intent, doesn't touch anything, who looks with lustful intent, has broken the seventh commandment in his heart. Long before anything physical happens. And, and again, I can just imagine the audience gasping because we're, we're, we're accustomed to, just like they were back then, people are commonly accustomed to thinking, I'm a pretty decent person. Never slept with anybody who's not my spouse. I'm okay. I, you know, I kind of keep the commandments of God and it all looks good on the outside as if God cares about whitewashed tombs. That all look good on the outside and contain dead men's bones on the inside. We're accustomed to thinking like that. I can go window shopping as long as I only buy at home. Jesus explodes that theory and makes the full intent of the commandment obvious. He's concerned about the heart, not just acting lustfully, but contemplating lust, wanting Someone else. And to underline the seriousness of it all, the seriousness of the sinful adultery of our lustful hearts, Jesus says two alarming things. He continues on the very next verse. Just after he talked about lustful looking, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, how? By lustfully looking. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. For it would be far better to enter in... To, to lose one member of your body than to take your whole body and enter into hell. Then he repeats the same thing regarding your hands. If your right hand causes you to sin, if you actually touch something, cut it off. Because it would be better to lose one member than to take your whole body into hell. Now this is obviously hyperbole. Obviously hyperbole because it wouldn't actually solve anything. You gouge out your right eye, you still have a left eye, don't you? with which you could lustfully look. Gouging out your right eye isn't going to fix anything. It's hyperbole. It's 
an exaggeration that's trying to, to draw a great big underline under the critical nature of fighting against lust. Go so far even as to make radical sacrifices to fight against this in your heart. Looking will take you to hell, he says. Fight against it with all of your might. Why will looking take you to hell? Well, this loops back to what's going on in, in the creation of marriage and sex. The, the things are really close. Remember, we are talking about how the physical intimacy of lying with someone is explaining to us in ways that we really can't articulate with our mouths, but it's explaining to us what union with Jesus looks like and feels like. And so God made sex very powerful on purpose. It's very powerful. It grips us. So it's very close to what relationship with God is like. But when it jumps the track, it, it gets a little bit off. It's extremely dangerous. Jonathan Edwards talked about lusts in general as a fire. And a fire is an excellent thing, especially back in the days when you don't have central heating. A fire is an excellent thing in the fireplace. Heats your house, cooks your food, use it for various other types of homemaking activities. It's an excellent, awesome thing. Everybody needs it. But when it gets out of the fireplace, it destroys. This, the sexual this intimacy issue is a critical and wonderful and awesome thing kept on track. But when it hops out, what it becomes is a really, really good, close substitute for God. I pursue it in the right context and I understand more about Him. I pursue it in the wrong context and it leads me away from Him. It becomes the thing that I expect to fill my heart. The thing that I expect to find pleasure in. The thing that I expect to satisfy me and leave me with that open and not ashamed feeling. But it doesn't quite work and so I need to chase it a little bit more. And it doesn't quite fit. I need a little bit more. Before you know it, you're far from God. That kind of attitude, that kind of heart action is what takes a person to hell. So fight against it. Get off of that road. Put it back on track. Are you serious about fighting against lust? I think probably that most of us are, are pretty aware of what Jesus is talking about when he says lustful intent. And he is, just to be clear, he's talking to all of us, not just married men. If you've never been married has you in view here. If you're a teenager, has you in view here. If you're a woman, has you in view here. View here. Even if, I, I think granted, it's probably, lust probably looks a little different for women. I don't want to say it looks entirely different because I know of the studies that say the female purchasing of straight old ordinary pornography is skyrocketing in this country. Women are buying in alarmingly greater numbers Plain old pornography. But generally speaking, it's a little different for women. Probably looks less like the physical sex that it does for men and maybe a little more like the, the whole picture of the intimacy of the relationship and the connection and the, the oneness with the person that probably includes sex. It's probably true that that's not quite the same for women, but it's still an issue for you. 
Are you serious about fighting against it? When you look the second time, or the first time, hoping to see something, when you seek to fill your mind with images and ideas, when you daydream or imagine, fantasize about what it would be like to be with so-and-so in a certain situation, Sometimes it's very graphic, very visual. Sometimes it's in a book. I've heard it said somewhere that the romance novel is female pornography. I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't do anything for me, but maybe it does for some women. I've heard that said. When you're looking and when you're thinking and when you're imagining and when you're hoping for that connection that's supposed to be reserved for marriage, for the covenant, when you want it outside of the covenant, and you hope for it, that's lust. We must fight against it. Our strategy for fighting against lust needs to have two approaches to it, which shouldn't surprise us because our strategy for fighting against all sin needs to have two approaches to it. What I, one that I'll call kind of a behavior approach and one a, a gospel approach. The behavior element includes, in, in this case, in this particular sin, all sorts of things that a person may build into his or her life to help them with the struggle. All kinds of stuff that you've heard of, that you've thought about. Maybe you have some of these things. Things like internet filters to keep images from coming onto your computer screen. You're dropping the movie, subscri- the movie channel subscription. Getting rid of your TV entirely would be a good idea. I love the fact that our TV doesn't work currently. It's great. Don't miss it a bit. Simply looking away, making the decision to not look at that. This is one that I struggle with. When, when springtime comes around, I'm driving down the road. The odds of me driving between here and there, wherever there is, and seeing somebody running along the side of the road wearing far too little, the odds are very high. And the battle I fight every time I get in the car is to look away. Which can be difficult when you're driving. But it can be done. Look away. Or avoid certain situations where temptation arises. Or if you're married... Obey Paul's commands in 1 Corinthians 7 to have an active sex life with your spouse. Read it. The Bible commands regular sex. This is great. Obey the Bible. (laughs) It's a good thing. And he specifically ties it to lust. As a behavioral way to fight against lust. Paul says so. It's right there. Accountability partners, all kinds of stuff like that. And that stuff can be helpful, and I don't want to diminish it. It's a good thing, but we cannot stop there. And I want to, I want to close by turning our attention to the gospel element. Because as important as it is to say no to sin, it's not sufficient to just say, I'm going to try harder to say no. What's going on is that there is a, there's a draw in this. There's, there's a draw. Of here's beauty, and here's hope, and here's pleasure, and here's satisfaction, and here's joy, and here's naked and not ashamed, and here's acceptance. And to say, no, 
It's very difficult. It is better and it is God's design to say, no thank you, I've got that somewhere else. And that somewhere else, if you're married, part of that somewhere else is your spouse. But the largest, biggest piece of that somewhere else is, connecting back again to what God's purpose in marriage and in sexual intimacy is, it's all pointing at Jesus in the church. The biggest somewhere else is God Himself. To find my heart resting in and filled with and satisfied in Christ, the Bridegroom is the biggest, largest, most successful, longest-lasting antidote to this draw. So turn to Him. Run to Him. Be filled with Him. That's why you can remain a virgin your whole life and be satisfied. Because sex is only temporary and it's pointing to something else. It's pointing to the one that you can have, just the same as a married person. Jesus is the one who satisfies the soul. He lives in you at the deepest level and will strengthen you. If He's in there, He'll strengthen you to say no to temptation. He'll satisfy your heart. He'll forgive you. For the times that you have run down the path of lustful looking or more. But ultimately, he, relationship to him, cuts the root, it cuts it off deeply. Just right at the surface, it cuts off the root of the draw to sexual sin because the hole that that thing wants to fill isn't there. We must remain physically pure and faithful. And we must remain mentally and emotionally pure. And that only happens as we trace sex back to what it's pointing at, to who it's pointing at, and feast our souls on Him, and fill the hole in our heart with Him, and lie naked and ashamed with Him. Relationship with the Bridegroom. Christ. Let me pray. Father, you have made us to be wonderful, remarkable, interesting creatures. And you have given us these temporary experiences, these temporary signs to speak to us in profound ways. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would hear and would trace them back to the source, Christ. They would love and long for and experience relationship with Him. Meet them in the Scriptures. Meet them in prayer. Show yourself. Meet them as they fellowship with other believers. These are the ordinary means by which you meet your people. Would you do that? Would you show up in grace, Father, Son, and Spirit? And for those of us here, Lord, who are trapped and confused and lost in sexual impurity of various sorts, married or single, bring light. 
Open our hearts, Lord, and deal with us. Call us to repentance and change. And Father, for those here who don't know You, would You point them towards where they can be filled? Make them aware of what they probably already know, that it's not filled hopping from bed to bed. Make them aware that there is hope in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.